The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Let me introduce myself. I'm Janie. I'm the associate director here at University Ministries. And that basically means that I'm really the person in charge around here. You might not want to mention that to Ryan. Um, We on the staff, all of us have this ruse going that Ryan is actually the person in charge, but he's not. I mean, he did name himself the great and powerful and benevolent R. We never named him that. We never called him that. So um, he thinks he's the one that has authority, but... That's not really the case. But, and I think you could ask, talk to any staff person and kind of check and see how things work. But that's really how, that's really what, what goes on in university ministries. So um, we're going to talk tonight a little bit about authority. That's kind of why I wanted to clue you in on how things work in the double wide. When it comes to our culture, having authority is important, isn't it? When you want something done, you go to the person in authority. Or if you're upset about something, you say, Can I speak with the the manager or the supervisor? Um, You go to somebody in in authority in order to get what you want. And in order to demonstrate this tonight, I actually have some letters that were written by a man named Ted Nancy. Um, And these are letters he wrote to different companies around the United States in order to get them to do something for him. So he went to the authority. So I'm going to read these letters here and kind of watch and see what happens when he goes to the authorities. (laughs) Dear Coca-Cola... I have a beverage called Kiet Doke. Will it interfere with your beverage, Diet Coke? The taste is not similar at all. Mine tastes like Pepsi. (laughs) I sell my Kiet Doke to mostly construction workers who love it. One guy said, this sure doesn't taste like Coca-Cola. Let me know so I can continue to sell my soda. Thanks. By the way, do you use caramel in your soda? Just checking. Thanks. (laughs) Sincerely, Ted Nancy. And Coca-Cola, respond, Coca-Cola responded. And I love the regarding. It says, Kiet Doke, and then they have a reference number for Kiet Doke in Coca-Cola. They say, Dear Mr. Nancy, thank you for your letter of October 25th, inquiring whether you may continue using the trademark Kiet Doke in association with the beverage. As an owner of a federal registration for the famous trademark Diet Coke, we cannot consent to your use of Kiet Doke in association with the beverage. We believe Kite Doke is confusingly similar to our trademark, Diet Coke. <laughs> and we are concerned that an appreciable number of consumers will believe that the Coca-Cola company endorses your product. As a result, we must insist that you immediately take action to discontinue use of Kite Doke. And then in the next sentence, it says you have to cease and desist using Kite Doke and then sign it and send it back to Coca-Cola. But Ted Nancy didn't stop there, actually. He wrote Coca-Cola again. <laughs> Um, A couple months later, Dear Miss Nancy Stevens, I have decided that I will not sell my Kiet Doke beverage anymore. The product is discontinued. I'm taking my $700 out of the bank and my 11 cans of Kiet Doke that are left and bringing them home. They're in my room now. (laughs) And if you skip down a couple paragraphs, please look out for my new beverage, Piet Depsy. (laughs) With the familiar slogan, it tastes nothing like Coke. 
We'll be in cooler soon. Pyatt Dempsey is a thirst-quenching drink, which I believe does not taste like your drink. Enjoy it. Also, what about that caramel in your soda? Are you using a lot of it? Thanks. <laughs> Respectfully, Ted L. Nancy. So this is some of the letters that are published in um, Letters from Annette. And I guess, apparently, there's two of those books. And really, Ted Nancy is Jerry Seinfeld. So he wrote letters to all of these corporations asking random stuff. Like, he sent a letter to the Flamingo Hotel asking for permission to gamble in a shrimp costume. And the response was great. Anyways, so I, I point out... I point out this authority for the Coca-Cola company to show that this authority just doesn't really care, right? They would rather throw the smack down, tell him to cease and desist before they would allow him to do anything. And tonight, we're actually going to be looking at a different kind of authority, one that we see in Scripture. As you may know, we're going through the book of Mark this quarter, and as we go through this gospel, we're asking the question, WDJD, what did Jesus do? What can we see in the book of Mark about what Jesus did? A visual picture, because Mark's a really visual book. Last week, Ryan told us about how Jesus went out and he grabbed some guys and um, they became his disciples. They were intrigued enough to follow this random dude who came up with them. They were compelled to follow him. And tonight, we're actually going to look at what happened when Jesus and these followers began ministry. It was It's essentially the first day on the job for Jesus. That's what we're going to be looking at. I want to mention, first of all, I, one thing I do want to mention about this is the expectations for the Messiah, the role that Jesus played, the expectations for the Messiah at the time were it was the country, the nation of Israel, and they were occupied by the Roman Empire. So the Romans were there. So there was much anticipation that a Messiah was going to come in and assert his authority as king over the throne of this nation, and he was going to wipe out the Roman invaders with one swipe of his hand. That was the expectation that a lot of people had for the Messiah that was going to come in, the, the authority that he would bring. But Mark paints a picture for us that looks a little bit different than that. Jesus' ministry didn't look anything like that. And what I want us to look at tonight when we look at Jesus' authority is how he asserts his authority and what he does in order to gain the respect of others for his authority. How does he make it known? What does he do? And what Mark shows us above anything else, is Jesus used his authority in order to be in relationship with people. It was about individuals. That was the purpose. That is what he was doing as the Messiah. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, but before we do that, I just want to stop a minute and pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you have authority and power in our lives. We're so grateful that you are present with us here tonight, and we're grateful for the pictures that we get of you and your interactions here on earth in the the book of Mark. I pray that you would be with us here tonight, that um, the meditations of my mouth and all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In your holy name, amen. All right, so we're going to jump right into Mark chapter 1, and... um, starting at verse 21, and I've actually asked Justin to read it. Um, We have a few passages of scripture tonight, and so you don't get tired of hearing my voice. Um, I'm going to 
I'm going to have Justin read it as the voice of the inn. So here's Mark 1, starting at verse 21. Okay. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with, with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, just said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So what everyone noticed about Jesus, even before mentioning that he drove out a demon, is he taught with authority. Not like the scribes and the rabbis that they were used to who would quote all these other people. They would, scro- they would quote Hebrew scriptures and other people to prove what they said. So Jesus coming in and not doing that is something that they weren't used to. But it is something that I think we're accustomed to. That's essentially what we do in like a research paper, right? We have to cite all of these different people with footnotes and endnotes and bibliographical notations and Chicago style and APA style and all that. I'm just getting a headache thinking about it. Glad it's you guys and not me. Uh Um, But we have to use people of authority more important than ourselves in order to support what we say, right? Well, Jesus didn't do that at all. Instead, by his own teaching, he self-authenticates what he says. But if you think about it, the experts and um, the people that we quote in order to make ourselves look smarter, those people have an intimate knowledge of the subject. That's why they're more important than we are in that subject. They understand more than anyone else that particular subject. And that is exactly what everybody noticed when Jesus came into the synagogue and taught. They all sat up and paid attention because he obviously had an intimate knowledge of the subject he was talking about. When he interpreted scriptures, they knew he understood it more than anyone they have ever encountered. They paid attention and recognized that there was something about what he had to say. Well, in contrast to the power that Jesus shows and being recognized, in our culture, I think there's a lot of things that we use in order to gain authority over other people. We'll use money, we'll use titles, we'll use degrees, experience. Even the clothes that we wear is a way that we demonstrate how we have authority over other people. And in order to give you an example of this, I have a video clip. of president of a company who wants to assert his authority over his employees. Um, and he's probably one of the best company presidents ever. His name is Joe Bluth um, from the show Arrested Development. So watch how Joe asserts his authority in this short clip. But I did finally get into dad's pants, although I had to have the crotch taken a little bit. You know, Joe, maybe it's the suits, but I think you may be beginning to alienate some of the employees down at work. <laughs> oh, 
That's great. The, the, the president has to worry about alienating the employees now. In fact, Joe had started to alienate some of his colleagues. Worst that can happen is I can spill, spill some on my $3,000 suit. Come on! Oh, hey. The guy in the, the $4,000 suit is holding the elevator, but the guy doesn't make that in three months. Come on! Oh, why don't I just take a whiz through this $5,000 suit? Come on! They like me just fine. You'll see that tonight when they toast me at the Christmas party. I love how Job continues to increase the amount of money that he paid for the suit in order to assert how much authority he has at work, even though he has none. So the authority that he tries to show is a lot different from what we see with Jesus in Capernaum. Completely different, actually. It's a lot different from what we see in this world when it comes to showing authority. And we see in the synagogue that Jesus not only teaches with authority, he also drives out demons with that same authority. He backs up his teaching with what he does. He actually shows them the authority that he has. Now, I want to go off on a tangent for a second because sometimes we can get hung up on this idea of driving out demons. A lot of questions about how come, you know, they drove out demons all the time in the biblical times. Like, it seems like in Mark especially, every time Jesus turned around, you know, he's performing an exorcism. But we don't really have, we don't really have people driving out demons today. Why is that? And there's a lot of different theories as to why maybe Today we diagnose demon possession as mental illness, or maybe it's the opposite. Like a lot of times in, in the biblical, in the biblical times, people would diagnose what was mental illness as a demon possession. There's a lot of different things that you could say about it, but I want to notice one thing in particular about this scripture. In Mark, the demons actually ask Jesus themselves. They say, "Did you come to destroy us?" Did you come to destroy us? Yes, actually. Yes, he did. And Jesus continues to destroy demons throughout his ministry and finally does so completely with his death on the cross. I think whether or not there were demon possessions back then or there are today is irrelevant. It's an irrelevant question for us because they have no power or authority today. And that's supported in throughout scripture that evil powers and principalities have no power because of the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. When we look at the scripture, what we need to focus on is not the fact that Jesus drove out demons. We need to focus on the fact that Jesus healed this man. He drove the demons away. That's what truly matters. The ailment isn't our concern. The fact that Jesus healed him is our concern. And what we can see from this passage of driving out demons is the fact that Jesus had the authority to heal. He demanded the demons listen to him, and they did. In our next passage of scripture, we see another healing. This time, it's not from a demon. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 29. Good. As soon as they had left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to, that evening after sunset the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, 
The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So here we have Jesus healing again, but this time it's from a fever. So we've seen Jesus teaching with authority. We've seen him driving out demons with authority, and we have seen him healing from sickness. And what I think this shows us is what is what is important is that not that Jesus is fighting against evil powers, but that he is healing people. He is healing individuals from whatever difficulty they are facing. He has come to stop the nightmares, to rescue people. More than simply to come and be the king and save a nation sitting on his throne, he has come to heal, to get down and dirty with people who are in need. Whether it's sickness or demons or all of the things that the townspeople brought to him at the door that day. This is the first day of his ministry. Talk about trial by fire. And the crowds already begin to gather because they have never heard or seen of anything like this. Someone who came not to gain authority by asserting his power, but uses his authority in order to heal people. And I think we all know that the need for healing did not stop in the first century in this town in Capernaum. I bet that in this room tonight, there are a lot of people that are broken and in desperate need of healing. Maybe it's not an evil spirit or a physical illness, but there may be something that you're desperate for healing for in your life. And what we have to do in those moments is be willing to go to Jesus and say, I need your healing authority in my life. Jesus, you can heal me. I need your healing. You can heal me. And then the next part of Mark chapter 1, that's exactly what someone did. So let's take a look at starting at verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So the leper comes up and immediately recognizes Jesus' authority, saying, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Now you guys need to remember that no one, absolutely no one, ever touched a leper. They lived in... Um, communities outside the towns, wherever they went, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, so everyone would know to get out of the way. And yet Mark notes Jesus is filled with compassion. He reaches out and touches this leper and heals him because he asked Jesus to. Jesus' authority is full of humility. Think about it. The God of the universe, the Holy One, is reaching down and touching An unclean leper. And Jesus wasn't bothered by this. He was honored by this. This is what he wanted. This is what he came to do. How Jesus asserts his authority from the beginning of his ministry was not so he could be strong and powerful, 
but so people could be transformed in every way. He had power over demons. He had authority to heal and bring hope and compassion. His authority is established in humility. And news of him spread everywhere. Soon, we'll see in Mark, everywhere he went, there were crowds of people gathered around in order that they might be able to be close to this man who comes and heals with authority. The power that he brings actually transforms their lives like nothing they have ever seen before. A question that comes up when we look at these verses about the leper is, why does Jesus tell him that he needs to go and offer sacrifices to the priest? Why does he recommend that he does that? He doesn't say, hey, be sure you go tell everybody that I'm awesome and I healed you. Instead, he tells them to follow the system of cleanliness. Go do what you need to do in order to be seen as clean. And I think that's the key. The leper didn't have to go do those things in order to be clean. But Jesus told him, go do what you need to do in order to be seen as clean. Because we know that if the leper entered into his town and he was screaming and yelling, oh, I'm clean, everyone would have been like, get away, get away. Because they wouldn't have believed him. But Jesus tells him, first, go and make yourself clean. Do what you need to do so that everyone will see that you are clean. And then they will trust what comes out of your mouth. The authority of Jesus we've seen is healing. It's driving out demons. It's humble. It's full of love and compassion. And the authority of Jesus is full of wisdom. Wisdom of when to speak and when we should shut up. Wisdom of when we should confront the authority that's in place and wisdom to know when we should leave it unchallenged in order to continue what it was he was doing, to not attract the wrong kind of attention. And I think this is a huge challenge for anyone who's a follower of Christ, that in certain situations we will know that it's better to keep ourselves quiet than to say anything and to let our actions actually be what speaks. I'm sure anyone who's spent any time going on a mission trip can attest to this. I know that when I go to a foreign country, my first reaction is, oh my gosh, I could teach you how to make things so much more efficient. It's a killer, right? But we know that we can't go in there and say all those things because no one will listen to anything that we have to say because they'll think, oh, she's an idiot. Some countries that we go on deputation and you can't even say that you're a Christian because it's so dangerous. The only thing you can do is show love and compassion to people. A few years ago, I spent some time living in Nairobi, Kenya. And I was working with an organization that worked with women who had spent time in prison. They were single mothers. And they were trying to get themselves back on their feet. They were living in the slums of Nairobi. Um, And... So I would come in there and try and spend time with them, but it became very obvious from the first few days that I spent there that every single thing that came out of my mouth made them laugh. Hi, I'm Janie. Oh, oh, oh. Um, oh how old is your child? Oh, God. Oh, can you tell me where the bathroom is? Oh, God. I mean, I was like I was on an East African comedy tour or something. They laughed at everything I said. And it became pretty clear that I needed to keep my mouth shut in order to be able to do anything for these women. Well, over the weeks and months that I spent there with them, I spent quite a bit of time time playing with their children, 
and sitting and listening to their stories and the ways that the dreams that they had for the future and whatever I could, just kind of absorbing what I could. And slowly over time, when I spoke, they stopped laughing, except for a few times when I tried to give them child-rearing advice, and then they would laugh, (laughs) which I would too. I don't know what I'm talking about. But I learned that I had to actually earn the right to be heard. I had to demonstrate love and compassion for them to even listen to what I had to say. And it doesn't have to be just in a foreign country. It can be wherever you are right now as a college student. There are times where we can use wisdom to know when we should speak and when we should not. Maybe you're at a party. Um, It might not be the most effective thing to go around to the party and point fingers at everybody who's drinking and say, demons out, heathen. (laughs) Right, right? I can see why people would think that would be what you should do. But it could be incredibly effective to not necessarily condemn everybody that's there, but to not drink yourself. And for people to notice the way that you conduct yourself, and then you can explain to them why you do what you do when they ask you. Or maybe, probably, everybody in this room has been in some sort of leadership position sometime in their life. And when we're in a leadership position, it can be so tempting to come and say, okay, I've got it all planned out, this is what we need to do, steps A, B, and C, and we'll be there. When in actuality, maybe the best thing for you to do is to shut up and listen to what you can and earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be a leader in that circumstance. What we can see with Jesus' authority is that he earned the right to be heard, and it wasn't cowardice. He wasn't chickening out. He was using wisdom. For me, this is one of the most difficult parts of my faith, to know when I should speak up and to know when I should shut up. And the only way that I can navigate those waters is to pray for wisdom and discernment of when to be quiet and let my actions speak and when to actually say something so that when I do, my words actually have authority. They mean something. And the best way we can do this is to follow the example of Jesus. Our last passage of scripture um, is Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 35. And pay attention to what Jesus does. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. While it was still dark in the middle of the night, Jesus goes to a quiet place alone and prays. Behind all this public activity and the controversy that surrounded Jesus wherever he went was total dependence on the one that he called Abba Father. Mark knew, this seems kind of insignificant, but Mark knew it was important to say when Jesus went off by himself. This is Jesus' first day of ministry, and he had a doozy of a day. But he knows that 
the authority he demonstrates, his teaching, his healing, his exorcisms, the love and compassion that he pours out, the humility. He knows where that comes from, and he returns repeatedly there to connect with his Heavenly Father, to continue in his work, to bring that healing authority to a world that is desperately in need of transformation. All these people that are desperately crying out, these individuals, that is what he came to do, to connect with the people who needed him most. Now, remember, in the midst of all of this, we've got the disciples. So I like to think that after this first day of ministry, they were probably thinking, all right, at first I was a little sketched out by this guy, didn't know what to think, but now... (laughs) Check it, he's like casting out demons. This is the real thing. I'm really glad I made the decision to follow this guy. So in the midst of all of this, Jesus chooses to show them the power and authority that he has. Because he knows one day he's actually going to pass this power and authority on to them. And he also passes that power and authority on to us. That we might be the ones that bring the teaching of Jesus. That we might be the ones that can bring the healing of Jesus. That we might be the ones that can bring the love and compassion into a world that is desperately in need of it right now in 2008. That is why Mark communicates this for us to know the role that we have in sharing this power and authority. I want to end tonight with A picture of authority. And N.T. Wright is an author and a theologian who tells the story of a great disaster at sea. It wasn't that long ago. A tourist boat is loaded with cars and um, there's all this holiday excitement as they travel from England to France. But they had failed to shut the doors properly. And the water starts pouring in and people are freaking out and running around and There's panic everywhere, it's chaos, and what was a really exciting holiday ship actually turned into a horror movie all of a sudden. And then all at once, this man, not a member of the crew, he takes charge. In a clear voice, he tells everybody what to do. He directs them, and he starts bringing some relief and some calm in the midst of this panic and craziness. And the people, you know, they start to calm down a little bit, and and they're able to see the lifeboats that they would have missed in the panic and in in the dark. And so they they start getting into the lifeboats. And the man actually makes his way down to the hold where um, the ship is actually nearly submerged. It's almost all the way under. But he holds on to the ship with one hand, and he holds on to a ladder from the lifeboat with the other hand. And he allows more people to actually cross over him into this lifeboat. And in the midst of everything getting settling down, when the nightmare is all over, um, they look around and realize that the man that was actually had all the authority and was telling them what to do, he actually had drowned. He had literally given his life in using the authority that he had assumed the authority by which so many others had actually been saved. Jesus came not to be a king on a throne here on earth, but he came to struggle against the forces of evil and destruction and brokenness and pain, all of the elements that seem like the dark, cruel sea that is toppling over us all the time. 
And he became the human bridge across which people can crawl to safety. And in the process, he paid with his own life the price of his saving authority. We're going to see further on in the book of Mark, the more we look, that there were a lot of controversy that surrounded Jesus. There were all these people who questioned his authority. There was always a darkness that wanted to come in. And the final, they had their final shrieks and yells at him at the day that he hung on the cross, when his authority was actually challenged for the last time. Because on that cross, Jesus completed the healing work that he began that first day in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus' kingly reign is happening today, right now, in front of us. And with it, he is bringing his authority and his power to us. And as we reach out in desperation and hope to him, Jesus is reaching out in compassion and love to us so that we might be able to partake in the transformation that we're not going to find anywhere else in this world. Amen.